You're listening to Road to Resilience. I'm John Earl. It's Halloween season again, the time of year when we go to elaborate lengths to feel afraid. With fear, though, comes the pleasure of overcoming fear. Think of a haunted house. You choose to go outside your comfort zone. You experience the thrill of fear. And at the end, you emerge victorious. If only it were that easy in real life, where fears haunt and hem us in like the monster in a scary movie, even after the monster is gone. To become more resilient, we need to learn to face those fears. And to do that, it helps to understand what's going on in your brain when you're afraid. With me to discuss how the brain processes fear is Dr. Anthony Lacanina. He's a neuroscientist in the Clem Lab here at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. He studies how fear memories are encoded and retrieved in the brain. And his work may lead to future treatments, including for post-traumatic stress disorder. In our conversation, Dr. Lacanina describes your brain on fear and explains why some scary experiences give us a thrill while others traumatize. He also talks about how researchers are learning to switch fear memories on and off using techniques that raise big hopes and even bigger questions. Um, Anthony, it's so good to have you on Road to Resilience. Thanks. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Happy to do it. Yeah. So you see a bear. What happens in your brain when you see a bear? In the uh, forest, yeah. you're camping, go. So first you see the bear, you would probably think consciously, holy shit, there's a bear over there. What am I gonna do? Um, but we think what's going on would be visual information comes in. Um, it's getting into the visual processing pathway. And then at some point, also those things are gonna converge into the amygdala to, uh, for most people is the hub of sort of this threat detection center. Um, and from there, that information is also flowing into the cortex. And we think that the conscious expression of fear is gonna be sort of really governed by cortical activity. This is gonna be prefrontal cortex, associative cortices in the brain. Um, and so, now you're going to want to maybe run away and have the defensive responses, whether, you know, fight or flight, um, that's going to kick in. You're going to now also have cascading physiological responses to help you survive. So you're going to have increased heart rate, dumping of adrenaline, um, and now you have all those cascading effects. Can you think of an experience in your life that was like that of, oh, I experienced like all those things that you were just telling me about? Yeah, I was uh, spending time in Ecuador during my college years and... Um, there was a point where our uh, sort of the guide there told us we lived right against a river. And he was like, something some people like to do is go tubing on the river. So I got, a, I convinced a couple of friends to go down the river and it was much faster than I, than I ex expected. And what ended up happening was every little tiny thing we saw in downstream that even looked a little bit like a, like a little whirlpool, I would freak out. And that happened maybe three or four times. And then the finally, like the fourth time, it truly was the act, like all the other ones were completely small compared to this one. It was this churning thing that, I mean, if we would have got sucked into it, we would have just been sucked down and I mean, killed. And so when I finally saw that, like from afar, I remember it being like <laughs> really scared. Yeah. What determines whether, uh, say that experience on the river becomes an impediment in your future life or is just a scary thing that you're able to learn from? Well, we know some of the ideas as to why fear, for example, or, or traumatic types of experiences would be say more potent and one could say just from an evolutionary perspective, you know, knowing where you, the food is in your environment and where to uh, get water and some of the things, those are really important for survival and you need good memories of that. Um, but 
you also need to always avoid a predator. Like that's a one-time thing, you know, you can always find food somewhere else. Um, so what's going on, like why in the brain is it more robust? And um, there's, it might be that the sort of threat processing areas would form really strong memories. Um, another thing is like, when you have something that's really threatening, we know that there's also dumps of, you know, neurotransmitters, neuromodulators, even the adrenaline itself is going to, we think, obviously then interact with the brain and sort of potentiate the types of learning. So um, it probably depends really on sort of like what an individual is experiencing at that moment. Um, you know, like if you are say in a combat situation as like a soldier and something happened to you um, that it also triggered something that you had you know, as a repressed memory of something in childhood, a very loud sound that at some point was very scary that you had even attributed. And now you're re-experiencing that in another life-threatening scenario. So it's almost like they can compound. Yeah, those things would probably be reactivated. Those things might compound. And then the imprints of, of scary things, especially really traumatic ones, might be just stronger on in the sense that the connections would be, would be more strong. And they're also going to, again, be biased to be retrieved in order to promote survival. Yeah. I mean, that seems to make sense. Like intuitively, it's the things that were true, scary, existential experiences would encode themselves more firmly yeah. than, you know, going to a haunted house and getting a fright. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, real things that would, you know, like that's what, what, when you go to a haunted house, you really do know in the back of your head, I'm not really in danger. It's a simulation of being in danger. And, um, of course, that's that's kind of the trick is that you still get scared when you go to haunted house. I definitely do. Um, uh, you know, just jump scares in general. It's it's impossible to suppress that. That's a reflex. And so, um, but in the back of your head, you you know, and we think that that again is top down cortical and hippocampal controlled context. Uh, you're, you're contextualizing the experience. Hmm. If something happens unexpected. Um, you weren't prepared for that. And it might be in a context that you might even ex assume is safe. Mm -hmm. And that violation might cause a very strong learning that would, you know, potentially, you know, invade in the future. Is there any, you were talking a moment ago about the importance of context um, and how you said like the hippocampus like imposes context and helps to, you know, prevent something that's merely scary from being traumatically so. Is there anything that can be done immediately after a traumatic event to um, lessen the chances that that becomes uh, a problematic memory. Yeah, this has actually been a, a, a well studied and there was hope that maybe providing some kinds of therapy initially would uh, be beneficial. One of the ones that are, are used very common is known as exposure therapy in which um, you would go through some kind of debriefing and almost be re-exposed to the um, traumatic experience. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes treating things immediately afterwards have the has the opposite and unintended effect of promoting the fear to be more permanent. Um, so this is obviously not what would one what one would want to do. Um, but the the hope is that we think that memories are actually still kind of labile when they are not fully formed. And there's a process in the neuroscience field called consolidation, where we think experiences in your life actually have to take time to make new connections with the previous connections in your brain. And this process is, we think, takes uh, potentially weeks uh, mm. to really sort of like lay down a very sort of what we call like a long-term memory mm. trace. So it sounds like that could be a window of opportunity for an intervention. Yeah, that's been like the, the thought for a long time. Um, but there's actually a lot of really interesting work being done now that when the 
if the if the memory is even brought to the surface, even if it's a very very long term, like a memory that's that happened years ago, there's chances that you can revive that memory and then intervene while the memory is again once plastic or once labile. Mm. And this is actually more thought as has more potential in the sense that many people that go through traumatic experiences don't even want to like address it or are maybe deny it or are, are focused on other things than or even not have the resources to you know deal with treating it um or or it happens to them at a young age and so these are all problems that actually having therapies that could intervene much later would be almost the the would be uh potentially really useful for you know a, a broader population of people what is a memory on a neurological level yeah that's a million dollar question. I would love to. <laughs> I would love to have a good, so, solid answer to that. Um, we have no clear idea, but I will give you the a, a more satisfying answer, which is, we we thought in the in the past a memory would just be a stable like you know there'd be five neurons in your brain, that would be like your grandma's you know <laughs> birthday, and if you could get if you could activate those, you would always remember like that experience. It turns out a memory might be not in in particular neurons themselves, like just one or two, but maybe in, in webs or collections of neurons that would, um, there would be mechanisms to give you more and more refined detail. And that's really kind of like, again, to go back to kind of like treating traumatic experiences. We think that those probably are laid down in a very um, strong pattern that unfortunately can be sort of reactivated by things that maybe not aren't necessarily related to it or that you sort of fail at contextualizing appropriately. And so one would that had um, something traumatic happen to them might, uh, something that would be benign and even though they know they're in a safe environment, they can't help have that, that response. And so um, figuring out ways to get over that is where the field is like trying to get to. And we're, we've made some progress, but there's still like tons of tons of work to be done. Right, which brings us to the idea of potentially, hopefully, extinguishing fear memory. Yeah, so this is what my my work was focused on. So there's some work that had been done that was um, through a through a bunch of really uh, fancy genetic techniques that I could go into uh, in depth if you want me to. But let's just say they were able to capture all the neurons that were active during an experience. And what they could do is in the future, if they stimulated them uh, uh, using a, a technique called optogenetics, they could basically reactivate only the neurons that were active prior, like in that sort of negative experience. And the animal would spontaneously behave as if it was remembering that experience. So the animal, even though it was in a totally safe environment, you would stimulate these neurons and the animal's behavior would start showing that they were afraid. You were uh, able to to stimulate the memory itself, like the fear network that we were talking about. That That's is, what we that think. is the memory. Yes, that's what you think. That's what they would like to say, and mm -hmm. you know, we, we can claim mm -hmm. we 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 to, as scientists we like to be very uh, uh, clear on what was going on, and you know, we could say when those neurons were stimulated, the animals behaved as if it was remembering. You know, like we don't really know its conscious experience of that. Of course, so what do we know now about stimulating the extinction memories and and kind of. Uh, harnessing those okay. to combat the fear memory. You know, based on both of those works that maybe fear experiences and then suppressing that fear, the extinction memories were maybe encoded in different populations of neurons. I went about it with that same approach where I 
put animals in, in a little context. And I would, again, capture all the neurons that were active either during the, the negative experience or what I did was I took a separate group of animals, I put them through that negative experience, and then I gave them that exposure or extinction training by putting them in the box over and over again, and their fear eventually um, declined. And now when I would put them in the box, they didn't have any response to it. Then what I did was I captured on one of the days when they were suppressing their fear pretty successfully, I captured those neurons. So now I ask the question, what, it's the same brain region, but it's sort of, capturing different populations of neurons, one active during fear and one active during suppression of that fear. And I found that they had completely opposite effects when I stimulated or I silenced those neurons. So for example, if I stimulated the fear neurons, I sort of replicated what previous work had shown, which is that the animals, even in a neutral, completely safe environment, they would actually express that kind of fearful response. But if I stimulated the safe or like extinction, I like to sometimes just call them the safe neurons, you know, um, I called, if I stimulated the safe space little uh, neurons, they animals would, um, if they were in a safe environment, it wouldn't do anything because they're already expressed, they're, they're not afraid of that area. But if they were back in that environment where it was scary to them, if I stimulated the, the again, this, the sort of extinction memory neurons, the animals would not relapse. They would have much less fear than the sort of ones that I didn't do that on. Are you saying you were able to cure the fear in the mice? Yes, let's say that so I get all the money in the future. <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, yes, I mean, yes, we, 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 we prevented relapse in these mice by stimulating the neurons that were active during that um, uh, ex sort of suppression uh, memory. And this is what I think has a lot of interesting potential therapeutics, right? If they're in separate populations of neurons and we could even like, you know, get somebody to go through a therapy session in which they were successful at suppressing their fear. If we could figure out, you know, and, and capture those neurons or strengthen the connections of them, maybe we can find ways to get over that biological crutch and make those memories stronger. Um, and so this is the sort of, I think the therapeutic uh, um, potential of this type of research. Hmm. How far away, what are the steps between where we are right now and a potential therapy? Like, what do we still have to understand? To get to actual like treatment in a, in a human, we need to be obviously like really cautious um, doing any, especially any real manipulation or intervention uh, is no, you know, uh, laughing matter because they could have, you know, unintended consequences. And especially if you're dealing with traumatic types of memories, I mean, there'd be nothing worse than intervening, trying to turn up the safe memory and accidentally doing the opposite. Um, but the reality is that people are hungry for therapies and they want, people are even hungry for experimental therapies. They're asking the scientists, please, like, you know, my depression, my PTSD is life crippling. You know, I would love ex anything to help me at this moment. And so I think we need to start going faster and sooner into, in terms of uh, experimenting and trying these things out. I think we're still a little far away from it, but I think the advent of a lot of these um, non-invasive brain manipulating types of devices, and because the way that now for any kind of brain therapy is you have to go through brain surgery and stick an electrode in the brain and stimulate it. If we could figure out ways to focus magnetic waves, potentially acoustic sound waves, um, any of these things that would could potentially be possible to get maybe specific subtypes of neurons to be strengthened or weakened, I think that's going to 
be a very pot, like that will be a game changer. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's the future I, well, I envision. Well, now you've got me in sci-fi mode because I'm thinking of going to the drugstore and getting the, the bear treatment if you've had a bear experience or getting the PTSD treatment oh, okay, if you've yeah. had a PTSD <laughs> experience. You want the scary one or you want you, you want to kill that? Itch. I want to kill, kill that. that. Okay. I thought you were like, I just want to get the bear experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is fascinating stuff yeah thanks so much Anthony it's been yeah. a pleasure thank you great talking to you that's all for this episode of Road to Resilience if you enjoyed the podcast please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and if you've got a few minutes please please fill out the listener survey on our website it helps us understand what you're interested in Road to Resilience is a production of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai our team includes Katie Ullman Nikki Hudson and me John Earl Justin Gunn shoots video for us and Kathy Clark shoots photographs for our website. Our executive producers are Dory Clesis and Lucia Lee. From all of us here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Anthony, tell me about your favorite film, your favorite scary movie. Oh, scary movie? Hmm, okay. Um, I think one of my favorites is Alien, mm-hmm. and I just have a, a, a visceral memory. I think it honestly was the first movie that like made me like terrified. I was I watched it maybe when I was eight years old or nine, and... The, this you know the iconic uh, chest bursting scene. Uh, I think I ran out of the room like screaming and hid under my bed or something. So um, yeah, I still do that every time I watch the movie. No, <laughs> but no, I love it. But it's great.